This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. For early Christians, the prologue to the Gospel of John inspired and demanded elaboration. Evoking Genesis, the prologue states, quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being, end quote. The gospel continues a few verses later with, and the word became flesh and lived among us. This is the core of incarnation, or literally enfleshment, and it conveys a pairing of creation and redemption that plays an important role in various expressions of Christology and soteriology. John's references to the word or logos as with God in the beginning and as an agent of creation who later became flesh exploded expectations of a purely or simply human Messiah, one anointed by God for set purposes of reconciliation or rule understood in a strictly historical scope. The Synoptic Gospels share in John's presentation of a thoroughly unexpected Messiah, and the very range of activities and characteristics ascribed to Jesus of Nazareth in the canonical Gospels confound in numerous ways. The Gospels do not simply present Jesus as divine. They also elaborate upon his humanity, even in its weakness and suffering. The Gospels present Jesus' anger, sadness, fear, and of course, his death on the cross. For early Christians, the Gospels presented as many challenges as opportunities. How can one coherently affirm the eternal creator was born in time, lived, grew, and died a gruesome death? How can one coherently affirm the swaddled babe was before all ages governing the universe? This challenge was met with the affirmation that Jesus Christ as God incarnate is both fully divine and fully human. We will consider in a moment the difficulty of understanding how to conceptualize that full divinity and full humanity. First, it is worth noting that various thinkers, past and present, challenge in diverse ways one or the other, the full divinity or the full humanity of Christ. Orthodox responses articulated intricate metaphysical frameworks for apprehending the incarnation and developed specific grammatical strategies for describing the incarnation. These frameworks and strategies, however, never presumed comprehension of this singular reality. Instead, they regarded the incarnation as a mystery. Within a theological register, the category of mystery denotes what surpasses human intellectual capacities without thereby being counter or contrary to human reason. So it's something that's above human reason, but not against it. There is fruitful space for reflection between full comprehension and total incomprehension. Discovering comfort within that fruitful space is essential for Christological reflection. Any number of Christological errors arise from the presumption of or desire for greater comprehension than is possible or permissible. I want to stress this sense of theological mystery when investigating the incarnation 
in order to weave together related strands of reflection and inquiry. There will be three basic parts to my talk this afternoon. First, I'm going to briefly trace some early Christological debates and questions, focusing initially on uh, the thinker Irenaeus of Lyon. This tracing will include prominently discussion of the Council of Chalcedon's definition of the faith from 451, a definition that established Christological orthodoxy. Second, I will turn to Anselm of Canterbury's Codeus Homo, Why God Became Human, and its articulation of a satisfaction theory of atonement. Having sketched Anselm's argument, we can reflect upon how the Chalcedonian formula underpins it. Third, I will offer a painfully concise summary of Thomas Aquinas on the Incarnation's fittingness and on the good as self-diffusive. Along the way, I will make references or gestures to the astounding breadth of material not even hinted at here. I should also note at the outset that aspects of this talk are inescapably technical. I will try to walk slowly through the dark woods of technical terms and unfamiliar conceptual schemes, but what I hope to also convey is how necessary or at least useful those technical terms and conceptual schemes are for articulating a mystery. So part one, though contemporary challenges to Chalcedonian orthodoxy tend to question Christ's full divinity, some of the earliest controversies regarding the incarnation reflected an opposite impulse. A spectrum of second century thinkers argued that the word appeared in the flesh but without possessing or being true flesh. Rather, the word's flesh was mere appearance or illusion. This position is known as docetism, from the Greek verb dokain, to seem or to appear. The impulse was noble, preserving the word's divinity from any taint of admixture with what is material and base. For docetus, the word could not truly be made flesh without ceasing to be divine or without somehow forfeiting impassibility, the inability to suffer. And they regarded the loss of divinity as absolutely untenable. The docetus reasoned the only way to preserve the word's divinity was for the word merely to appear in the flesh without taking on or becoming true flesh. The impulse was to separate the divine from the human realities of Jesus of Nazareth. Such a view preserves the word's immutability and impassibility, but at a rather high cost. Against the docetus, theologians such as Irenaeus of Lyon, who lived from 130 to 200, argued for the concrete and historical particularity and actuality of the word's flesh. Just as importantly, Irenaeus stressed with equal vehemence that this entailed no diminution to the word's divinity. Irenaeus devoted substantial attention to Christology in his lengthy work Adversus Heresis Against the Heresies. Beyond refuting what he considered the impoverished hermeneutics of the heretics, Irenaeus articulated a strategy for approaching or reconciling the gospel claims about Christ, ranging from the grandest to the humblest. All these seemingly disparate statements refer to one and the same Jesus Christ. This becomes a central phrase in Christology, one and the same. Any attempt to divide Christ from Jesus, divine from human, as if the two cohabited or somehow existed in parallel, misses the point entirely. Irenaeus writes, quote, 
For Christ did not at that time descend upon Jesus, neither was Christ one and Jesus another. End quote. He later elaborates, there is, quote, one Christ Jesus who came by means of the whole dispensational arrangements and gathered together all things in himself. But in every respect, too, he is man, the formation of God, and thus he took up man into himself, the invisible becoming visible, the incomprehensible being made comprehensible, the impassable becoming capable of suffering, and the word being made man, thus summing up all things in himself. End quote. This clarification itself seems full of contradictions. The invisible made visible, the incomprehensible made comprehensible, the impassable made passable. How can these be maintained? Over the next centuries, multiple approaches arose to explain how one and the same Jesus Christ could be eternal and temporal, impassable and passable, glorious and humiliated. The attempts culminated or found resolution in the Council of Chalcedon's definition of the faith, which established Christological orthodoxy. Doing so required precision, and precision required the embrace of technical terminology at play in theological debates. There are many points to make here, but it would be best to read a section of the definition and then to comment on it. So I'm going to read a lengthy quotation from the Council of Chalcedon. And so, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice teach to confess the one and same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and the same perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly human, of a reasoning soul and a body, of one substance with the Father according to the divinity, and the same of one substance with us according to the humanity, through all things like us except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father according to the divinity, and in the last days, born for us and for our salvation from Mary the Virgin God-bearer according to the humanity, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, understood in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, with the difference of the natures at no point removed through the union, but rather the property of each nature preserved and coming together into a single person and a single subsistence, not dispersed or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, only begotten, God, Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets beforehand, and he, our Lord Jesus Christ, taught about himself and as the creed of our fathers teaches, end quote. There's much to comment on in this dense passage. The language of one and the same stands out, but equally evident are the attempts to ensure that affirmation of one and the same Jesus Christ does not invalidate, undermine, cancel, or somehow prevent any and all duality. How, though, to name what is one and what is dual? Chalcedon affirms a single person, prosopon in Greek, and a single subsistence, hypostasis in Greek, in Christ. While person and subsistence name what is one, Chalcedon affirms this one and the same Christ to be understood in two natures, and the Greek for nature here is usia. Chalcedon specified that the two natures in Christ, divine and human, 
were united in the one hypostasis or person of the word. The question was, how? The Chalcedonian definition qualifies the union as in two natures, quote, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Grammatically, these phrases are four negative adverbs in the original Greek. So, when pressed to explain how the two natures are united, the definition of Chalcedon stipulates four ways in which they are not united. We should linger over these four negative adverbs. Without confusion indicates that the two natures, divine and human, are united to each other without becoming some new or third thing, a tertium quid is the technical terminology, some third thing that is a mixture of the two, some strange semi-divine cocktail. Likewise, without change clarifies that each nature retains what is proper to it. The union does not change the individual natures into new things in their union. Without division prevents any split or splintering of the whole. The two natures are truly united in the one person of the word and do not divide the person of the word. Without separation eliminates anything less than a true union, any mere juxtaposition or indwelling or show of favor. So to recap, because this is technical, the two natures are united without becoming a new type of thing, without themselves undergoing a substantial change into something new, without carving up the person of the word into parts, and without any distance between the natures as if they were merely in proximity to one another. These four negative adverbs guard against what were considered pernicious Christological errors, misguided attempts to comprehend fully a theological mystery. At the same time, the very grammatical form of these adverbs aims to preserve that theological mystery as mystery. As precisely how the two natures are united in one person, the definition confidently responds, not in this way, not in that way. The Greek term translated as definition is horos, which can also mean limit or boundary. The Chalcedonian formula defines or sets boundaries around the permissible field of reflection. The space for orthodox reflection or speculation on the incarnation is constrained by Chalcedon, but the definition serves as a generous restraint. We can imagine the definition as a fence. Fences can keep things out or in, and for various reasons, not all generous. But if we imagine, I always try and picture this as something like a plateau. If we imagine a plateau, it is not difficult to imagine how a fence could add a most useful measure of safety, especially in the dark. It prevents anyone accidentally and perilously tumbling over the edge. We can summarize Chalcedonian orthodoxy as follows. One and the same Jesus Christ is the one person of the word or divine logos existing in two natures, the divine nature and human nature, united without change, confusion, division, or separation. Subsequent centuries would bring further elaborations or specifications of the consequences of the Chalcedonian definition. These elaborations and specifications answered new challenges arising from various criticisms of Chalcedon by so-called non-Chalcedonian or Miaphysite uh, Christians. Cyril of Alexandria, a famous theologian who lived from 367 to 444, emphasized unity and identity 
through the confession of one nature, mia phusis, of Christ incarnate. I, I'm stressing this because phusis was a separate Greek word for nature, the nousia. And so uh, these, these terms came to have um, distinct technical meanings, but when they were first being used, they did not yet have distinct technical meanings. So people had to come up with new terms to describe things. Cyril died some seven years before the Council of Chalcedon, but his followers were divided as to whether the Chalcedonian formula confirmed or deviated from Cyril's Christological convictions. Eventually, debates shifted from the expression neophusis to other terms or categories to express the asymmetrical unity and duality in Christ. These terms or categories included the number of energies, operations, or wills in Christ. Debates about these categories came to be known as the mon-energist and monothelite controversies. The Third Council of Constantinople settled these controversies in 681 by affirming in Jesus Christ two natural energies, operations, and wills. Constantinople III argued for two energies, operations, and wills because energy, operation, and will pertain to nature rather than to person. In other words, Chalcedon established a basic logic according to which whatever pertains to person was one in Christ, and whatever pertains to nature was dual. The Gospels do not employ the language of hypostasis, usia, or phusis. So why are these appropriate or even licit terms? When asked why he resorted to non-biblical terminology, the third century theologian Origen of Alexandria quipped that it was because heretics were always finding new ways to misread the scriptures. A similar idea pertains here. The Chalcedonian definition serves as a guide to reading scripture rather than an external overlay or imposition. How does one reconcile the lofty and lowly affirmations of Christ in the New Testament? The Chalcedonian definition and its subsequent elaborations provide a conceptual framework for such work of reconciliation. That conceptual framework is in some sense metaphysical and in some sense linguistic. The definition of Chalcedon affirms that the property of each nature is preserved and comes together in a single person. This can seem to stretch to the breaking point, our normal way of speaking, and if not recognized precisely for what it is, can result in confusion or apparent contradiction. The idea came to be known as the communicatio idiomatum, the communication of properties. The communicatio idiomatum allows for expressions such as God suffers without conceding that the divine nature is passable. How? This relates to the meaning of nature and of person. The person is the underlying metaphysical and grammatical subject of the natures. This means that whatever is true of either nature can be said of the person in some respect. What this does not mean is that whatever is true of one nature is true of the other nature. So what does this look like in practice? The divine nature is impassable, and so in some obvious sense, God is impassable. Nonetheless, in virtue of the incarnation, it is permissible to say God suffers or God is passable because the subject God in these expressions is the fully divine person of the word bearing a passable and suffering human nature. 
It is impermissible to say God the Father suffers or that the divine nature suffers. Affirming that God suffers does not mean that the divine nature suffers, that every divine person suffers, or that the divine person of the word suffers in respect to divinity. We say Christ suffers rather than that Christ's human nature suffers because we ascribe suffering to the person, to this individual subject, rather than merely to the nature. Human nature is passable or capable of suffering, but common human nature does not act or suffer. Individuals do. Complex rules develop to govern what can be termed concrete and abstract predications. Mercifully, I will not delve into those here. But it is important to note this as a central distinction. So with this background, exploration of Christological orthodoxy and the union in Christ complete, we can turn to Anselm's Cardeus Homo. So this is the second part. Irenaeus stressed the pairing of creation and redemption. The focus here rests on creation through the word according to a reasonable, logical, and orderly manner. The disorder of sin necessitated a reordering. And so who better than the word through whom all things were created to restore that order? Irenaeus often uses more specific imagery to focus on the reformation or recreation of humanity through the incarnation. He presents the logos as the model or exemplar for the creation of humanity stamping or forming that lump of clay like a seal on wax. Exposed to the elements, say for example, the heat of the sun or of sin, the wax softens, begins to lose its form. How can the likeness impressed upon the form at creation be restored? By bringing back the original model to reform the likeness where it is deteriorating. This approach aids in understanding and incarnation but it hardly clarifies why the story of the incarnation, why this reformation of disordered humanity would include the crucifixion. Anselm sought to sketch an answer. So Anselm of Canterbury lived from about 1033 to 1109, and his work, The Crudeus Homo, Why God Became Human, is a dialogue between himself and Basso. Crudeus Homo famously articulates a satisfaction theory of atonement. Anselm's satisfaction theory of atonement frames sin and redemption as a transaction between God and humanity. The significance of a satisfaction theory rests in part in what it denies or refuses. One common idea or image from earlier centuries focused on human beings as in legal servitude to the devil through sin. The payment was death. According to this framework, Christ, as sinless, did not owe the debt of death, but freely chose death. Greedy for the prize of a sinless soul, Satan unjustly grasped or snatched at Christ's soul, thereby undoing any rights previously held. They would often use the image of sort of God fishing, like Christ's soul after the crucifixion was let down into hell, you know, on a line, and, and Satan takes the bait, and then the, the game is up. Satisfaction theory also differs from what uh, a later idea called penal substitution theory, according to which a penalty for sin was owed by humanity and that Christ could substitute for humanity in paying that penalty. Anselm's satisfaction theory of atonement employs many of the same terms and ideas, but removes the devil from the equation. 
the incarnation and crucifixion do not ransom humanity from legal servitude or otherwise offer payment to the devil or merely substitute for humanity. Anselm's treatise purports to demonstrate the necessity of the incarnation and to do so while bracketing what is known from scripture. It is important to stress from the outset that Anselm's bracketing of scripture is questionable at best, and that is generally clear that he does not intend to demonstrate the necessity of the incarnation in a vacuum, but rather to explore and explain the reasonableness of the incarnation to those already disposed toward the faith. Two justly famous phrases from Anselm reinforce this. The first is credo ut intelligam, I believe so that I may understand, or I believe in order to understand. And the second is fides quarens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. Anselm employed these phrases to qualify his own theological efforts. They serve equally as guiding principles for his efforts and as interpretive principles for his readers. Anselm's abiding disposition towards theological reflection involved diligent and rational investigations of matters transcending human intellectual capacities. So, knowing that Anselm rejects redemption as a transaction with the devil, and that he frames his investigation of the incarnation as an exercise in faith-seeking understanding, why is the incarnation a reasonable response to sin? Anselm takes it for granted that the incarnation responds to sin. The question is how and why this way? How does the incarnation answer the problem of sin? At its most fundamental level, Anselm characterizes sin as arising from and through disobedience. The proper remedy for this ill, the most effective means of repairing the harm of disobedience, is through obedience. Obedience cannot be restored through an intermediary. Humanity disobeyed, and humanity must obey. This simple observation leads to a complex series of reflections. Anselm's argument can seem deceptively simple when viewed from a schematic perspective, but for all his efforts to construct carefully a linear and logical argument, Anselm's cur deus homo resists simple summary at almost every turn. That speaks against treating it here, but there are other and good reasons for doing so. If for nothing else, Anselm's cur deus homo is a giant upon whose shoulders subsequent texts and authors have stood. It remains a pivotal work and unsurpassed within its own parameters. In the Cur Deus Homo, Anselm sets forth the following basic premises. First, human beings were created for happiness, which cannot be possessed in this life when there is sin. He later specifies that rational nature was created just in order to be happy through enjoying the supreme good. Second, happiness requires the remission or forgiveness of sins. And third, no one passes through the present life without sin. These premises or conditions set the basic parameters of the argument. Since human beings were created for happiness, abandoning sinful humanity to its own condemnation, misery, and despair would thwart the divine intention in the very creation of humanity. Again, we see a pairing of creation and redemption. Were humanity not to achieve its created end of happiness, in the enjoyment of the supreme good, the plan of creation would be disordered. Restoration of fallen humanity does not merely serve the good of humanity, 
but also of the larger providential plan of creation. The first two premises or conditions clarify this. The third premise frames the difficulty of restoration. Human beings mired in sin cannot themselves achieve restoration. At the same time, obedience cannot be restored by another. The two conditions create a seemingly insoluble dilemma. Before investigating Anselm's resolution of the dilemma, it is worth taking a brief detour through Anselm's understanding of sin. This will clarify precisely why obedience cannot be restored by another. Anselm remarks, to sin is nothing other than not to give God what is owed. So, what is owed to God? According to Anselm, absolutely everything, every thought, every action. Everything is owed to God without remainder. God does not need anything from human beings, but human beings need everything from God. This all-encompassing dependence means that what we think and do and are is owed to God. Through the disobedience of sin, humanity fails to give God what is owed. That failure creates a debt. Anselm specifies this as a debt of honor. Failure to give God what is owed dishonors God or even robs God's honor. The theft does not truly damage God or diminish God's actual honor. It damages and diminishes humanity, which becomes mired in its own disobedience and debt. The crime cries out for punishment to maintain justice, and death restores justice by punishing sin. Yet that preservation of justice through punishment does not restore humanity to its intended end. Anselm amplifies the problem by reflecting on the magnitude or enormity of sin and on humanity's inability to repay even the most trivial of debts. We can begin with human inability. Since humanity owes everything to God, there is no reserve, nothing extra that humanity could ever give to repay a debt. Again, it matters not how minuscule the debt. All that could be given is already owed. The debt of honor from human disobedience is in addition to and in excess of what is already owed. What more could be given than everything? Sin lands humanity in an inescapable predicament even at its best. The situation, however, is far worse, and for two reasons. The first is that repaying the debt of honor requires something greater, aliquid maius, than the stolen honor. Simple restitution, even if possible, would not suffice. Giving back what was stolen could never alone suffice. It would not respect or reflect the harm of the theft itself. That harm can only be righted Humanity can only be restored by something greater. The second reason why the human condition is so dire concerns the enormity of sin. To convey this, Anselm sets up a thought experiment. Imagine a scenario in which all of creation, all that exists other than God, was in jeopardy of perishing and being brought to nothing. Imagine further that you could prevent this decreation, that you could preserve all that is in existence with a single glance in one direction. Now imagine even further that God commanded against that single glance. Well, what is worth more? For Anselm, it is absolutely clear and definite. Real obedience is a rational being freely willing the divine will. Disobeying the will of God with the merest glance 
is far worse than letting all of creation fall out of existence. Stated otherwise, the value of God's honor exceeds the value of all creation. So, what is the magnitude of sin? It is more than the whole of what is. That is the debt owed. Reassembling these points, we can grasp the fundamental problem as Anselm sees it. The disobedience of sin has created a debt of astounding magnitude. Restoring humanity and fulfilling the created order requires paying this debt through obedience. Humanity already owes everything to God and lacks any resources for paying the smallest of debts. This debt steals God's honor, which is worth more than the world. If humanity cannot pay the smallest of debts, how could it ever repay a debt of such magnitude and to repay it with something greater? In fact, what is something greater than the universe? The first glimmer of hope comes when Anselm acknowledges one circumstance in which a human being could offer something in excess of what is already owed. A sinless human being would not owe death. Were there a sinless human being who could voluntarily accept death in obedience to the divine will, that act of voluntary acceptance would exceed what is owed. In the technical terminology, it would be a supererogatory act. Even granting this hopeful acknowledgement, there still remains Anselm's premise that no one passes through this life without sin, and that even such an act would face the hurdle of providing something greater than the debt of sin, a debt of greater magnitude than the universe itself. Since nothing within the universe could be greater than the whole of the universe, the only agent with the capacity to offer something greater is God. God bears infinite value. Omnipotent acts surpass all limits. God's omnipotent acts are something greater than creation as a whole. The conclusion to draw from this is that God and God alone is able to make satisfaction for humanity's debt of honor incurred through the disobedience of sin. Though this seems reassuring, the catch is that only humanity ought to make satisfaction for the debt of honor incurred through the disobedience of sin. Only a sinless human being could produce a supererogatory act, but no human act could equal the something greater owed. Anselm's reasoning brings his dialogue partner Basso to the brink of despair, and only then, when confronted with the abyss separating divine ability and human obligation, does Anselm reveal the unimaginably clever solution. The only possibility for satisfaction, given these constraints, is the deus homo, the God-human. Again, Anselm is bracketing scripture, and so employing the expression deus homo rather than naming Jesus. One and the same individual must be fully divine and fully human. The only way for this to happen is for two natures to be united in one person. Here we can return to Chalcedon and reflect on the power of the Chalcedonian formula and approach. For Anselm, satisfaction for sin and the restoration for humanity are only possible given something like a Chalcedonian Christology. Everything hinges upon this. Any Christology that did not preserve the full divinity and full humanity of Christ could not meet Anselm's standards for ability and obligation. Chalcedon affirms the property of each nature preserved in the union. The properties of human nature include passibility, 
the ability to suffer, though death is not natural to humanity in its sinless state. Human nature does not require passibility. That requirement followed as a consequence of sin. Yet even prior to the fall, human nature had the capacity to be passable. The significance of this is that the person of the word could assume a perfect human nature, perfect in the sense of without fault and complete, that would not suffer of necessity as a punishment, but that could suffer according to the word's will. At the same time, the word remained fully divine, and Christ possessed the divine nature with its omnipotence. As Anselm notes, the Deus Homo is omnipotent and can freely die in obedience to give honor to God. The life and person of the Deus Homo are of infinite value, are more lovable than sins are odious. The free gift of this life surpasses all sin. The free gift of the Deus Homo's life is something greater, aliquid maios, than the debt of honor incurred through the disobedience of sin and it allows for human happiness while preserving divine justice. There could be no happiness without justice. There could be no justice without satisfaction. There could be no satisfaction without the Deus Homo freely willing death as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of humanity. The inevitable conclusion for Anselm is that purely rational analysis reflects or supports the revealed dispensation Namely, that the person of the Son became incarnate for the sake of human salvation, employing the divine power to pay the debt of sin through the supererogatory act of a free sacrifice. Anselm's argument is much more intricate than summarized here, but this hopefully provides a sense of the larger arc of the Credeus Homo. Anselm presents the incarnation as necessary for human salvation, given a specific framing and in an attempt to demonstrate the reasonableness of the Incarnation. So I'm going to switch to part three, the final part, so um, bear with me, please. Thomas Aquinas, who lived from 1225 to 1274, begins the Summa Theologiae's analysis of the Incarnation with the question whether it was fitting that God should become incarnate. The category of fittingness, convenientia, plays a crucial role in the Summa's Christology, allowing Thomas a means for exploring and explaining the wisdom of the Incarnation. This, in a sense, reprises aspects of early debates about the Incarnation and Anselm's reflection on the reasonableness of the Incarnation. In defending the Incarnation's fittingness, Thomas makes reference to Paul's famous text from Romans 1.20 that the invisible things of God are made known through the visible. The incarnation makes visible God's goodness, wisdom, justice, and power. These four categories all play important roles in Thomas's Christology, beginning with goodness. Thomas clarifies fittingness in two basic ways. First, the fitting designates what corresponds to the very nature of something. We can linger over this for a minute. Um, you know, it's fitting for birds to fly, because for most birds are flighted creatures, there's some that aren't, but, you know, it's fitting for birds to fly, it's fitting for fish to swim. There are other things that can swim, and, you know, fish can, there can be flying fish, they jump out of the water, but it's fitting for fish to swim. That's their very nature. The very nature of God is goodness. And Thomas argues, quote, it belongs to the essence of goodness 
to communicate itself to others, end quote. Becoming incarnate reflects the fullest self-communication possible and so is perfectly fitting to God. The idea of the good as self-diffusive or self-communicating is a medieval development of earlier views. When applied to the incarnation, it reprises an idea seen already in Irenaeus, namely the pairing of creation and redemption. The foundational self-communication of divine goodness is the act of creation from nothing. Created reality exists insofar as it participates in the gift of being, and the diversity of created realities existing within an ordered whole reflects divine goodness and wisdom. The second basic manner in which Thomas presents fittingness concerns how something is done. Thomas addresses this when questioning whether the incarnation was necessary for human restoration. His reply is that yes, the incarnation was necessary for human restoration, but only in one sense of necessity. It was not an absolute necessity or a sine qua non. No absolute necessity could constrain divine omnipotence. God could have restored human nature through other means, and that point is crucial for Thomas. Thomas acknowledges a second sense in which something is necessary for achieving an end. In this second way, things are necessary when they allow for the end to be achieved better and more fittingly. Thomas presides, provides the example of a horse as necessary for a long journey. The journey could be made on foot or even by crawling, but the journey would be much easier by horse. A horse is not absolutely necessary for a long journey, but the journey can be made better and more fittingly with a horse. Is, we could translate this into more modern terms. You know, I flew here from Ohio this morning, which is kind of absurd. But you know, you could imagine someone could say, well, why did you need to fly? You could have walked here. Yes, I could have. But you can say, look, that sure, flying from Ohio to Florida is not a necessity, but it's much better. It's, it's fitting. Okay. The incarnation was necessary in that it represents the best and most fitting means for the restoration of human nature. Thomas expands upon this by listing five ways the incarnation promotes the furtherance in the good and five ways it promotes withdrawal from evil. The fittingness of the incarnation reflects the divine wisdom in communicating the fullness of the divine goodness most efficaciously. The incarnation was not absolutely necessary for human restoration because God, God's omnipotence labors under no constraints. There had always been an understanding that the incarnation resolved the problem of sin, and the question had traditionally been how it did so and why it was the appropriate resolution. In Thomas's framing, it was fitting according to God's nature, but not necessary according to God's nature. It was necessary in the sense of fitting because it best promotes humanity in the good and removes humanity from evil. The incarnation's fittingness with respect to God as the self-diffusive good might seem to imply God would have become incarnate even had there been no sin. There are other reasons for suspecting this. In his treatment on grace, Thomas investigates extensively the workings of grace and its effects. Grace serves two basic functions, healing and elevating. Thomas distinguishes natural goods and supernatural goods. Accomplishing natural goods lies within the powers of human nature. In its created state, humanity 
would need no additional assistance beyond its natural capacities to accomplish these natural goods. After the fall, however, sin damages human nature, impairing its natural capacities for accomplishing these goods. Grace heals human nature by working within the human will to make it effective in willing natural goods. Grace heals by restoring human nature's intended capacities for willing the good within the scope of its natural parameters. Grace also elevates. Thomas's point here is that the life of blessedness, the beatific vision of God, exceeds natural human capacities. Humanity is created for and called to an end above itself. Achieving that end requires the elevation of grace. Grace elevates the human will as a cooperative cause of this supernatural effect. Humanity could never achieve the supernatural end of the beatific vision without grace's elevation. So, grace heals or restores, and it elevates. The highest communication of grace unfolds with the incarnation, with the assumption of human nature into hypostatic or personal union. Had there been no sin, there would have been no need for grace to heal or restore fallen humanity. Had there been no sin, grace would still have been necessary for the elevation of humanity to a supernatural end. Scholastic theologians took great interest in examining questions from many angles, and this led to a host of counterfactual questions. One such question was, would God have become incarnate had there been no sin? Many argued yes, and this position has come to be associated, particularly with a number of Franciscan theologians. Exploring these views and arguments would take us too far afield, so please let it suffice for now to note that some argued God would have become incarnate had there been no sin, but would not have suffered. Thomas agrees with many points in favor of such a conclusion. His remarks on the necessity for elevating grace apart from sin and on the self-diffusion or communication of divine goodness reaching its zenith in the incarnation might easily suggest that God would have become a, a incarnate apart from sin. Thomas, however, prefers a more reserved approach. He affirms that God could have become incarnate apart from sin. But he argues it is better to say God would not have become incarnate had there been no sin. His reasoning is that Scripture everywhere presents the incarnation in relation to sin. Scripture provides no warrant for speculation into theological mysteries or to counterfactual scenarios since human beings cannot comprehend or predict what depends solely upon the divine will. For Thomas, this question is not about God's nature or about human needs and other circumstances. It is simply about the permissible limits for human speculation into theological mysteries. What this all means is that when confronted with the question, why God became human, Thomas lists a wealth of reasons. Some reasons relate to sin, others do not. The existence of reasons for the incarnation apart from sin, however, does not warrant affirmation of what God would have done had there been no sin. For Thomas, one must instead humbly wonder at the mystery. Now we can briefly recap some of the chief points we have sketched. 
The gospel portrayals of Jesus include elements both lofty and lowly. Theologians debated how to combine, harmonize, or explain the glorious and the gory in gospel accounts against those who might deny either element or to partition them from each other. Irenaeus stressed that they were all true of one and the same Jesus Christ. This refrain of one and the same echoed through the centuries and received greater conceptual framing at the Council of Chalcedon. Chalcedon stressed the duality of Christ's perfect natures together with the singularity of subject in Christ. Chalcedon's conceptual framing resisted over-specification, ultimately explaining how Christ's two natures were united through negative descriptions, without change, confusion, separation, or division. Anselm's attempt to explain why God became human reflects a Chalcedonian approach. The reality of sin creates a dilemma only solved by the deus homo, who unites ability and obligation in one subject. Only the deus homo can perform a supererogatory act of sufficient value to satisfy humanity's debt. Though Anselm frames the Codeus Homo as a demonstration of the Incarnation's necessity on logical grounds, his broader commitment to theology as fides quadens intellectum suggests his intent in the Codeus Homo is to demonstrate the Incarnation as a reasonable solution to the problem of sin. Whereas Anselm concentrated on the Passion, Thomas Aquinas approached the Incarnation from a broader perspective. The chief reason Thomas provides to explain the fittingness of the Incarnation is that it pertains to the very nature of the good to communicate itself, and that it pertains to the very nature of the supreme good to communicate itself supremely. Though this might suggest the Incarnation inevitably follows from God as the supreme good, Thomas opts for a more cautious approach. Since scripture everywhere frames the incarnation as a remedy for sin, Thomas holds it would exceed epistemic warrant to affirm beyond revelation what God would have done had there been no sin.